0: Good morning restoration. It's so good to uh, be together, Um, whether you're in a house church this morning or if you were by yourself at home. uh, Maybe you're catching up to this on a podcast um, later on and you're catching up with us. We are on a series looking at a letter. That's it. We're looking at a letter written 2,000 years ago from a guy named Paul to a little church 800 miles away from him. Uh, He's in prison. They're not they're gathering outside, probably in a courtyard, and someone is reading this letter to them out loud. And we've been taking our time going through this letter because it it has so much to say to us in the moment, so much to say to us in our current uh, season, not only as a church, but as the people of God living in this time. And so, May these words encourage you, may they challenge you, uh, may they um, pull you into a, a deeper reliance, not only on Jesus, um, but a deeper trust in his plan and, and how we can do that together, how, how we can journey together. And so, one of the things that has been going on in my world is that I've been spending a lot of time with other church leaders, um, from across the country, um, we've been gathering on Zoom, and we've been asking and talking and, and seeking uh, the Lord together, and um, one of the things that's come up, so we've asked the question, what has uh, the pandemic, what has this season revealed about us, about us as a church, about us as the church together? And as we've talked, as we've seen, you know, obviously in our lives, personal lives, we've, we've all had things that have happened and come to light because of the pandemic. But one of the things that has come to light for, um, for many of us who lead churches is the idea that the pandemic and the change in how we operate as a church has really highlighted how unformed we are like truly unformed we are in living the kingdom. Uh, You know, for years and years and years, um, I've been involved in church life, whether it's been leading or attending or whatever. And what I can look back on and what the season, the pandemic season has highlighted for me is this idea that I've been really formed in attending church, in doing church things, and doing Christian things. Um, sometimes out of duty, sometimes out of joy. But has it really formed me? Like, am I really, have I really been formed on what it looks like to live under the rule and reign of God? And, and how has the gospel, the announcement that Jesus is Lord, penetrated every part of my life? And we talk about this a lot. But there's, we're all being formed, whether it's intentionally or unintentionally. Intentional formation would be putting ourselves intentionally in places that are uh, shaping us, whether that be uh, a school setting or um, maybe through some counseling or maybe through some uh, discipleship mentoring with somebody. Those are, those are intentional formation. Unintentional formation just happens to us. It happens to us as we go about our day. Um, Right now in this moment, uh, two weeks from an election, actually less than two weeks from an election, we are potentially, you you are being formed by a political narrative, um, one political party or the other. It's usually fear-based, it's almost always fear-based and it is forming you. And you can discount that and say, well, that's not really happening to me because I'm right. Um, but that is just goes to show you that you've been formed. You've been informed um, by the narrative and it has formed you. And so we need to pay attention to these things. What are the things that are forming us and unintentionally for us as we go about our day and we go about our life and the dreams we have for ourselves and our family those are forming us. Your education has formed you. Your way, the way you look at the world forms how you behave in it and with others. And so this is something that Paul really gets into today. And, and we're going to get into this because what we're looking at is how to have a life that is formed into the shape of the cross. How do we have a life that has a cruciform to it, that is formed by Jesus, that is formed not only by Jesus's life, but it's formed by his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Because ultimately, that's what it looks like to follow Jesus. And we need to hear this right now. We we desperately need to hear this and to reflect on our lives, not only as individuals, This is not an individual message. This is also uh, really a conversation about us as a community. And so Paul starts off chapter three. It's crazy. We're already into chapter three, it's only taken 14 weeks. So Paul starts off chapter three. He says, Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs. Those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh, and he's he's actually saying there are voices that are trying to form you, that are trying to form you into thinking that you have to do something more, that you have to go through a different door, uh, an actual Jewish door, to get to the Messiah. So there's more hoops for you to jump through, and he's like, watch out for those people, and he says in verse three. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh. I have more. He goes, he goes on, he says, if someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. So he's saying, if you want to play the, the who's more Jewish game, I'm going to win. I'm going to win that game all the time. And then Paul begins to unpack his story to actually go back and show them how Jewish he is. Um, So just in case they want to play the Jewish game, listen, he goes like this, circumcised on the eighth day. So this is uh, not only the, the, the Torah command this, but what he's saying in effect is my parents were Torah-believing, Torah-obeying Jewish people. And they circumcised me. They had me circumcised by a rabbi on the eighth day. And then he goes on. He says, of the people of Israel. So he's claiming his lineage is of the people of Israel, the genus of Israel, uh, and the tribe of Benjamin. Okay, so this is, uh, this is no small thing. He's saying, I was a part of the tribe, of the actual first king of Israel. In fact, I was named after him. My original name was Saul. And there's really, at this time, in Paul's day, scholars believe that there were only two tribes that could trace their lineage. Uh, Paul is saying, I can trace my lineage all the way back. I'm that big of a deal. (laughs) Then he says, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews, meaning I'm a Hebrew-speaking child of Hebrew-speaking parents. Um, and at the time, um, there are different types of Jewish people. There were Hebrew of Hebrew Jewish people, and then there were Hellenistic Jews. Hellenistic Jews were those who kind of adopted kind of a Greek form and Greek language in their life. And Paul is saying, I'm not like a sellout. I'm legit Hebrew of Hebrews. And then he goes on. He adds into this. He says, in regard to the law, a Pharisee. Now, for us, we think Pharisee bad. Uh, for Paul, no. Pharisee was like an... That was a big deal. Uh, for, for those who loved the Torah and worshipped the fact that if we could only... I mean, these were serious, serious people. First century, they were a religious sect. Serious people who believe that if, if all, of, all of Israel, just for one day, just one day, if all of Israel obeyed Torah, that God would step in, that God would show up and liberate the people of Israel and, 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 and do his work, right? And then he says in verse six, as for zeal, persecuting the church. Now, zeal, um, this idea of, uh, of, it's like a religious anger. He was a religious nationalist. Um, The zealots were a group of people that actually brought violence in their religious nationalism. Um, And he would not claim to be a zealot, although he did approve of zealous acts. And then we get a little further and he says, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless, meaning he didn't claim to be sinless. He said, because of the law and my uh, duty and my, my work being, uh, offering sacrifices, I was faultless. And so in Paul's day, this is an unbeatable resume. This is a, if you're playing Jewish poker, this is a royal flush hand that he lays down on the table. And, uh, but verse seven, he totally switches gears. And he says, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. So he lists his whole resume. He lists his whole Um, credentials. And then he says, he says, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider that a loss. He's actually, this is an accounting metaphor for those of you who love accounting. There's like three of you. Um, Just kidding. Uh, He's saying these were the things in the gains column, but I've actually now transferred those to the loss column. Meaning, when I found Jesus, all the things that I thought were assets became liabilities. They transferred the ledger over. And then he takes it even further in verse 8. He says, what is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. So all of his history, all of his fame, all of his notoriety and his Jewishness transferred over. But then he said, you know what? Actually, everything's a loss. Everything moves to the loss category compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And he's, he goes on, he says, for whose sake I have lost all things. I did a little digging. I'm like, well, what did he lose? And um, there's some great scholarly work out there on the life of Paul and what he came from and what he actually laid down to follow Jesus. Um, Paul gave up a ton, as it turns out. Paul was a rising star in the Jewish world. He was on the Sanhedrin, which was 70 elite um, people, uh, men who, who followed Torah, who were, who were up through the schooling. I mean, this guy was a, a disciple of Gamaliel, who was a famous rabbi of the day. The day. And, and, and many people believed he was actually the next Rabbi Hillel, or the next Rabbi Shammai. And he was on his way to becoming a super rabbi, a notorious historic rabbi. And um, he was well off. Uh, many people believed he was well off. He was well taken care of. Um, and that m- many scholars actually believe that Paul was potentially married and, and, and had um, just a nice life. And that in his conversion experience, in this whole action, that his wife actually potentially left him. Um, And so he has uh, no family. He's dirt poor. He's a wandering, in a sense, teacher with no home or family after he follows Jesus. He makes tents and wanders around (laughs) telling people about Jesus. And then he goes on. He says, so for whose sake I have lost all things, he says, I consider them garbage. Now, um, that word "garbage" um, isn't garbage. <laughs> it's uh, um, it's the Greek word "skubalon," uh, which sounds like Scooby Snacks, or Sco- it's, it sounds like it's not a big word, but it's actually an expletive. Um, it's not a Scooby Snack. <laughs> it's uh, it actually means sewage running down the gutter. It is uh, it's a it's a it's a word that means excrement, basically. It is a it's a colorful word. Paul it reaches deep into the language of and, and he finds a word that is so revolting to make his point. I consider them scubalon. And um, in ancient cities, obviously, sewage was a different thing. And so it was a little bit more in their world. And, um, and then he goes on and he says that I may gain Christ. I consider all that sewage that I may gain Christ. So what, what do we gain with Christ? Paul goes on to tell us what we gain with Christ. He talks about his lineage, he talks about all this stuff, and he's like, I consider it all garbage, sewage. Here's what I gain with Christ. Verse nine, and be found in him, not having righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God, bases, on the basis of faith. So real quick, he, he, he's gonna talk about four things that he gets. Um, by gaining Christ in his life. He talks about the things that were now losses. Now he talks about the things that are gains. And the first one is to be found in him. Paul uses this analogy of being found in Christ over a hundred times in his 14 letters. It is a huge metaphor to be found in Christ. And the theological term behind this is union, Um, or incorporation that when you uh, and I uh, surrender our lives to Jesus and trust and put our trust in Jesus that we are found in Christ. This is the idea behind baptism that in baptism you and I go under the water and we partake in a sense of the, the, the death and burial of Jesus and then Coming out of the water, we partake in the resurrection. It is not more, it, it's a symbol, but it's much more than that. That God actually meets us in that moment. And so, um, actually, quick plug. If, if you want to get baptized, this is a, 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 a huge pillar of the faith. And it's, and it's a powerful moment. And we would love to walk with you towards baptism and, and, and help you get baptized. If that's something you want, please reach out. Um, but he's basically saying, and, and he says this further on in Colossians, he says, you died and your life is now hidden in Christ. Um, and the idea behind this, um, and you've probably heard this before, but that when God sees us, he sees Jesus. And at the same time, when God sees Jesus, he sees us. That's the part of this Um, idea behind union or incorporation. You are in Jesus. You are hidden with Christ. And and it's because you are a son and daughter of God. So this this idea behind this is with all your baggage, with all your mistakes and your regrets, and all the things that have come out during the anxiety of the pandemic, all your mess-ups, all your screw-ups, all of it, all your sin, the stuff that has a hold on you. Jesus is saying, uh, Paul is saying that God sees Jesus. God see, he's not blind to you. He's not blind to your, 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 your mess-ups and your mistakes, but you are now a son and daughter of God, and that God sees Jesus. And it says, in him, so this idea of being in Christ, and who is Christ? Well, that word Christ can be translated Messiah, also be translated king, And so when you are baptized into Messiah, when you're baptized into the king, um, something amazing happens. you actually baptized into uh, Jesus, who is Israel's representative. So Jesus shows up as Israel's representative, is the one who would make, um, who would do all the things that Israel was unable to do. You are actually baptized into Israel's representative, does that make you a Jewish person? No, it, it doesn't make you a lineage of Jew uh, of a Jewish person. It makes you part of the people of God. So that the moment you decide to follow Jesus, you become part of the family of God. And that's what Paul is saying. He's like, to be found in him. He says, I wanna be found in Messiah. I wanna be found in, in the uh, representative of Israel. Um, not because I follow the rules. He's like, I had all that going on. That's rubbish. That's scubalon. He's like, and, and let, let's talk about righteousness, because he mentions righteousness. It's not a word we like to use a lot. We don't go around in our daily life talking about righteousness. We do in a negative sense when we talk about someone being self-righteous. Um, but in Greek... The word righteous isn't a moral term. It actually is more of a legal, technical legal term. It's a word that's used to to talk about your standing legally. And so you would come before one judge in Paul's day, um, and that judge would either justify, meaning declare you righteous, in the right or not. And one day, Paul is basically alluding to this idea of that one day we will stand before the judge, the creator of the universe, and he will declare us in right standing, in righteousness. And so Paul's like, not wanting to brag about that. I mean, that's not his thing, but to have a right standing in front of God based on faith. Now, what is faith? That's another tricky word that we get wrong. Faith isn't just belief. Uh, let me give you a little real quick, nerdy backstory here. Um, faith, The word faith in Greek is pistos. And there was a massive debate in the 16th century, okay? This was um, a time of great reformation that was happening. The, the church was really cracking. In its theology, and um, many reformers—these are people that wanted to reform the church and get back to the basics. Um, there were a number of different reformers. One was Martin Luther, and then there was others—Zwingli um, and Calvin, and things like that. And, and the the big debate was what to do with this word "pistos." Okay, because they're reading it, they're starting to translate the Greek and things like that. And there's two different ways, you know, a tricky thing to translate. It's not a word for word translation from Greek to English uh, or German in this case. and so the the trick was, uh, does this word pistos mean faith or does it mean faithfulness? okay and as as and, and their nervousness to stay away from this idea of being works based that we can actually work towards our salvation, which is the huge reaction they were having to Roman Catholicism, they chose to translate pistos faith and not faithfulness. Well, here's the problem. You fast forward a few hundred years and faith has become synonym for belief. What is belief? Belief is this cognitive um, agreement with Jesus. So when you say, I, I have faith or I believe in Jesus, um, that's not actually what the word means in the original language. So Paul is not talking about belief. One scholar actually takes the word belief and he adds it to loyalty. Okay, this is Matthew Bates. He writes this, With regard to eternal salvation, rather than speaking of belief, trust, or faith in Jesus, we should speak instead of fidelity to Jesus as cosmic Lord or allegiance to Jesus the King. And you've heard me use these words before, fidelity and allegiance. Um, I think these are much better words. And so to believe, you know, yeah, that's great believing and have trusting fidelity, trusting fidelity in Jesus. That's what's behind this. And so the idea is to lean the weight of your life, okay, onto Jesus and to hold on and not let go. And righteousness in the eyes of God because you hold on to and trust and walk with Jesus. Paul says, I want to hold on to Jesus. That's what Paul is saying. And so the first thing is to be found in Jesus. The second one is real brief here. It's this idea of to gain new knowledge, right? Um, This idea that that, that knowledge is the Greek word gnosko, which is this idea of intimacy um, with somebody. Um, Think of um, the idea of, of two becoming one and getting married and the, the intimacy of a wedding night, that it, like the insane intimacy of a husband and wife knowing each other uh, so well. And this is the idea that, uh, that Paul saying we gain the knowledge of God because of our intimacy and our close relationship with Jesus. And then he goes on and he says, yes, to know the power of the resurrection. He's like, Paul says, I want in on that. And then he says, and and the participation in his sufferings, the word participation is koinonia, that's just like how we join together this fellowship in Jesus, in his sufferings. And then he says, becoming like him in his death. And that's the third piece of this. Paul is actually saying, not only are we going to be found in him, we're going to gain new knowledge, but you become like Jesus in his death. Wait, what? Now, if you were talking to me, just this idea of, okay, knowing Jesus, check. I'm on board with that. Um, Know the power of the resurrection, check. I want some of that too. But participating in his sufferings, becoming like Jesus in his death, I don't know, that's the tricky one, right? Right? The Western church has been really good at highlighting the benefits of following Jesus, okay, without the suffering. The benefits of following Jesus without the suffering. For Paul, sufferings, he's all about the sufferings here. And this is the part that Paul just hones in on, and he's not wanting a spiritual experience. He's not wanting a spiritual high. He doesn't want to just feel better and um, go about his life. He, he actually realizes, Paul, I mean, if we're really true to this, the history of Paul, Paul recognizes how much suffering he's caused like how much suffering and pain he's brought to people. And, and he, he gets suffering, and he's saying that resurrection comes on the other side of the cross, the other side of suffering, and, and there's hope there, there's hope after the despair. And it's, and it's the recognition that in, in times of suffering, we know Jesus in a deeper way and become more like Jesus that that's what suffering does for us, that it can be an incubator for growth. Um, The shape of a Christ-formed life, okay, is a life that has suffering in it, is a life that um, has us dying to ourselves, all right, dying for others to bring life. In the first place, I think it's just really important for us to understand in the life of Jesus is the garden. Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane, and he's actually praying that the cup that he's about to drink would be taken from him. But then he goes on and he says, but not my will, but your will be done. And that is the beginning prayer for us in our dying, in our suffering, in our dying to ourselves and our wants and our desires and our needs. The first place we begin is this prayer of surrender, not my will, but your will be done. Now, a lot of times what people have done is they've conflated the word suffering with persecution, which is not... It's not a good way to read scripture. In fact, that will get you um, into um, some places in our world that really misrepresent Jesus when you do that. There are all kinds of suffering that are included in the framework of Christ, okay? There's the suffering of the innocent. I mean, think about uh, the suffering that people experience due to no fault of their own, okay? Whether it be a disability, whether it be their skin color that is brought on, or their ethnicity that is brought on suffering. Um, The things that have happened to us due to no fault of our own. The wickedness and... um, uh, the pain in life that, have, that has happened to us due to no fault of our own. The sufferings of the innocent. Then there's the suffering of human weakness. The reality is, is that mental health and physical health and disease and those are all part of suffering. Um, Jesus suffered just being human. When we talk about the fact that Jesus bled and breathed his last breath. But he also experienced fatigue and re- rejection and loss. That is part of what Christ suffered. He didn't just suffer on the cross. But we also learn about Jesus, he suffered for the sake of others. This idea of choosing to suffer, willingly put yourself in a place of suffering for others. And if we're called to be like Jesus, then we're called to be like him in his death and to entrust ourselves to God, and, and it is kind of not my will, but your will be done, and enter into the suffering of others. That's part of our calling. And Paul says, I want the sufferings of Christ to form me. I want the sufferings of Christ uh, to, to shape me. I don't want to run for them. I don't want to use them to walk away from God and blame God for things in my life, but I want them to draw me closer to the one who suffered for me. That's what Paul is saying. And think about, uh, have you ever seen people laying concrete and the idea that you create a form out of plywood and different materials, and you prepare the ground and all of that stuff, and you create a form, and this idea of you pouring the concrete into that form, and, and when it's dry, it takes the form of what it was poured into. And that's the idea here, that Jesus' life, okay, death and resurrection are the form, okay, by which you and I pour our life into. That's what forms us. And it takes intentionality. It takes our willingness. It takes our laying down of our lives in order to pour ourselves into that form. And over the years, the suffering, uh, the pain, um, the suffering for the sake of others uh, begins to look like Jesus. So back to what I said at the beginning. Showing up at church on Sunday does not form you. Giving to church doesn't form you. I mean, all these things help. They're they're part of the process. But ultimately, those those aren't things that are going to deeply shape you. Pouring your life into the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and letting that form you as a person, that will change your life. That will transform you. For Paul... God wants to be more than, uh, God wants us to be more than in Jesus. He actually wants us to be like Jesus and do what Jesus did. And and the point is to live like Jesus. The point is to become visible representations of who Jesus is. Um, And and then in verse 11 it says, And so somehow attaining to the resurrection of the dead. Paul is saying, I don't know how, but somehow. Some way, my horizon is filled with hope of the resurrection. And that's our fourth thing, to be remade at resurrection. A soul free from sin. A soul free from lust and discontentment and anxiety and anger and shame and hate a soul free from all of that, to live forever under the rule and reign of God uh, in his presence over a perfected creation with no decay and, and, and no cancer and no brokenness and no evil. Guys, this is not a myth or a fairy tale. This is the hope. Of the resurrection. This is what we cling to, the center pole of of what we cling to as followers of Jesus. And and after the cross comes resurrection. And you gain a brand new future and a brand new place. And the reality is, here's where we get to. Christianity, following Jesus, okay, um, is not just to believe in Jesus, not to have a cognitive um, agreement with who Jesus is. It's actually to have a new form to pour our lives into. And what Paul is saying is every other form is garbage, is scuba Paul is saying that all those other forms, and he's like, and I had a pretty good one, I thought. That Jewish form, I mean, I had that nailed down. And Paul is saying that's all sewage. Basically, he's telling the Philippians, hey, Philippians, what do you have to give up? What do you need to consider scuba on? Salvation is free. And at the same time, it costs us everything. Salvation is a free gift, grace through trusting fidelity. But what do you need to give up? What forms need to go away? And I dare you to ask the Spirit what that is. Because what do I need to give up in order to follow Jesus? What what do I need to change from a credit column to a debt column? a lost column. And to end, what I want to do is I just want to bring up the story that you briefly read in the beginning of your house church. Matthew 13, 44. It's the story. It's the, one of the smallest parables in scripture. It might be the smallest, shortest. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy, went and sold all he had and bought that field. In those days, people didn't have banks and safety deposit box and 401ks. They had treasure, they hid it. They dug a hole, they hid it. Jesus is highlighting this idea of what Paul has said to us today. And the idea that the kingdom of God, that following Jesus, that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection are a treasure that we should be willing to sell everything for. That everything in our life All the things that we've kind of propped up, all the forms that we've poured our life into, whether success or family, all these things, are scuba on compared to following Jesus. And so the question I have for us today is, what has formed you? What have you poured your life into? And How is that different? How is that maybe pushing against this idea of following Jesus? May we pour our lives into this form. Let me pray. Father, thank you for the words of this letter. A thank you letter from Paul to a group of people 800 miles away who he loves so much. God, you love us so much. May these words of Paul um, shake us, challenge us. God, give us the courage to pray, to ask the Spirit, to listen, to reflect, to even be in conversation together about what has formed us and what the death, burial, and resurrection actually mean to do in us.